presented by the Common Sense Institute. Welcome to Common Sense Digest, the podcast that seeks to inject a little common sense into Colorado's policy discussion. Here's your host, Earl Wright. Welcome to the Common Sense Digest podcast. My name is Earl Wright, and I am chairman of the board of CSI. Thank you for joining us today. It's hard to believe that we are nearing the midpoint of 2023. After a busy legislative session as Coloradoans gear up for ballot season, I'm pleased to welcome to our show two of CSI's fellows, as well as our executive director, Kelly Caulfield, to provide a quick review of the past six months. This ought to be a very interesting 30 or so minutes. This year, CSI produced a multitude of nonpartisan economic reports on many legislative items crucial to the future of our state. And just because the legislative session has ended, it does not mean our work will stop here. Here to discuss some of CSI's most compelling research over the past six months, CSI's Owens Early Criminal Justice Fellow, George Brockler. It's good. good to be here. That's great to have you on board, George. CSI's 2023 Mike A. Laprino Free Enterprise Fellow, Lang Sias. Lang, it's great to have you here. Nice to be with you, Earl. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. And CSI's Colorado Executive Director, Kelly Caulfield. Kelly, it's always great to see you. Hi, Earl. Thank you. Just a few weeks ago, the first regular session of the 74th General Assembly came to a close. I'd like to start with a softball question, but you know, maybe I can change up the speed if necessary. Could each of you share an example of how CSI research impacted the debate and policy and narrative at the Capitol this session? George, let's start with you, and then Lang, follow, and then Kelly. Well, listen, I think that the most obvious one is the motor vehicle theft law that got changed to elevate all motor vehicle theft to a felony. I don't even think that was an issue on anybody's radar until the Common Sense Institute put together a series of reports that didn't just get to the attention of the public, but really got focused on by the legislators. And so, you know, this year we had that bill that was bipartisan in nature, two big Democrats, two big Republicans. And this thing uh, made it through, not without some hurdles, but made it through, got it to the governor's desk. And right now, Colorado is, is going to see for the first time, maybe in my lifetime, a bill that says, we don't care the value of your vehicle. If it gets stolen, it's a felony. And, and that's a wonderful change. It's a first step towards a, a much bigger process. I appreciate your humility and, and uh, bringing that up. But George, it's pretty hard when you had Mitch uh, and yourself as district attorneys and the reputations that you all had doing that report and the overwhelming data and information. It's kind of like, I don't mean to be telling your business, like having an expert witness and standing up there and saying, hey, folks, this is what's happening. And we've had to deal with this. Uh, congratulations, George. You and Mitch did a, a marvelous job in the study that supported what I thought uh, this legislation's response to. Well, I appreciate that. I, I think that Mitch and, and Kelly and Stephen and all the other folks there, Chris, that helped put this thing together, it just became something uh, a bit overwhelming for anyone who read the reports to come to the conclusion that we're not here by accident. The reason we're the number one state for motor vehicle theft in America years in a row is because we've made some mistakes with policy. And I'm just thrilled that the legislators that jumped on this bill were willing to take a look at it and say, okay, well, whatever we did wrong in the past, we're willing to try to fix it now. And I hope we get more of that in the future. 
Lang, I'd really be interested in hearing what you have to say about this session and what you thought would a highlight. I'll point to a uh, to a highlight that is something that actually both you, Earl, and I have been involved in for a while, and that is PARA, our public employee retirement system. And just to turn the clocks back to 2018, PARA was in deep trouble, as you remember, at that time. And this is about 600,000 of our Colorado citizens are members of PARA. So it's a very big deal uh, for them. And also uh, at that time, PARA had a, an unfunded liability of over $50 billion with a, with a B, which put the state's credit rating at risk um, and also made it more difficult and was going to make it more difficult for our school districts to receive financing. So it was a big deal when we instituted reforms back in 2018 uh, that that actually put PARA on a much better trajectory. Fast forward to 2020, and the legislature actually did not, it with, withheld some of the funding that was required under the 2018 reforms. Now, what did CSI do this past year and over the previous couple of years was to put out studies showing what the consequences of not funding PARA as was required under the law, and also what the benefits would be of putting additional money into it. And so in this session, after a great deal of debate and work with uh, leaders on both sides of the, of the aisle, uh, who were looking at the great work that CSI had done, the legislature did finally go ahead and put that money back in uh, where it had been taken away so that we can keep PARA on the trajectory that we put it on in 2018. I think we all know that there is still work to be done there, but it was very important that we stay on that glide path so that we take care of the, of the state, the state's finances, our school districts, and PARA members. So I think that was a very important thing that CSI research played a major role in. Well, once again, though, you're, you're kind to give CSI a lot of credit. We, and we did play a, a role, but you have to have legitimacy in the people that are doing the work. You'd mentioned Stephen, who is a PhD in economics for CSI and the team. But Lang, my goodness, you've got a master's in economics from London School of Econ from London School. And I'm sitting here saying to myself, how could you not pay attention to somebody with that kind of a background who is willing to put his time and effort into it? as a, a member of legislature, and then also as a private citizen to get engaged. So thank you for the nice words for CSI, but also thank you for putting your your reputation behind that that work. My pleasure. It was uh, it's a little little nerdy, but very important. And I think we can uh, we can all we can all be proud of that. <laughs> nerdy. OK, we'll take nerdy. Kelly, take speaking of nerdy, I'm not really intending to say you're nerdy, but you've got one heck of a background in government affairs for a long time in Colorado, back in Washington. How do you take that expertise and the experience of yours and assess what happened down at the down at the Capitol? Thanks, Earl. I think I'm going to take it in the direction of education policy, because I think this issue impacted a lot of us. I'm curious if anyone listening today had a child waiting for a school bus that never came last school year, maybe a grandchild. Are you hearing about driver shortages for Colorado school buses? Why is school choice maybe only a dream unless we had the transportation? These are issues that have been raised a lot since I've been working in Colorado policy. And it was a subject of great research by our education policy fellow, Jason Golden. 
he published this report in January of this year. And I think it was just a matter of a few days later that we saw legislators respond. And Jason's report was able to total how much money the state is spending and how much local school districts are spending on transportation. His report found about $62 million invested from the state, $300 million invested from local school districts. And he posed some really important questions. Are we getting the highest ROI on the dollar for that transportation money? Are there more innovative ways to transport our students in a way that enable more school choice and access to concurrent enrollment activities, to apprenticeships, to internships? And that report um, really hit, I think, a, a strong note there because we had bipartisan legislators, Rachel Zenzinger, Senator Paul Lundin, and House members as well, Representative Wilson, took that report and said, hey, we want the state to dig into this deeper. So there will be a student transportation task force that passed and we're hopeful that conversation will continue so that we can better leverage those dollars to support our students. I appreciate all three of your comments, but there, as this legislation, like so many others in the past, uh, there's always that year-end drama at the end of the session. This year, uh, we were impacted by Colorado's skyrocketing property taxes that followed the amazing three years, maybe three and four years of appreciation of property values that has occurred uh, uh, since the pandemic. There was a proposal uh, was put together in the last few days of the legislative session that despite limited stakeholders input, so SB 23-303 proposes to blunt the projected increase in property taxes coupled with reductions in future TABOR funds. Not real certain how all that fits together, but let's try to handle that if we can. The additional revenue to the state would be used to backfill local governments for losses and property tax revenue and to increase spending for education. The additional revenue, of course, referring to the property taxes that would be occurring with this much higher valuation. Kelly, can you uh, and HV provides your thoughts on the legislative proposal and what role CSI can play to educate the voters? on the ballot this fall. I mean, educated, because this is something where who turns down to, uh, what could be dollars coming back into your pocket with the referendum? And Lang and George, I'd also like to hear your thoughts after Kelly. Thanks, Earl. I mean, let's get to the heart of the matter. Housing costs are rising rapidly in Colorado. We have limited supply. We know we need more affordable units. And then skyrocketing property taxes made it all worse. CSI research showed that there was a 127% increase in housing affordability, and that was just in Denver. And when you look at that property tax increase that you just noted, we were able to see between a 30 to 60% property assessment increase. That's about another week or two of work that the Colorado worker has to do just to afford that tax increase. As an average bill of about $1,700 for the year. So you can kiss your summer vacation goodbye. This is a real problem and real money. And I think the question you're posing about the legislative solution put together in the last few days before session ended was a real problem. When it comes to a policy that complex, that needs time for negotiation, stakeholdering. And I think the question that Colorado voters should be asking this summer is the quick fix, the right fix. And I think CSI 
can play a critical role. We're going to put together a calculator, which will be on our website, where we can show where each resident could put in their address, could put in their county. It'll help calculate what is your property tax reduction if the ballot measure passed, but it will also show you how much you would lose in the long run um, from your Tabor refund. So we're hoping to give voters the full picture of what that property property tax reduction looks like, but also um, the long-term um, realities of your lower or completely eliminated Tabor refund. Okay, I, 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 I think I'm hearing how sausage is being made down at the state legislature. Lang, help us out. You've been down there, you've been a sausage maker. What's going on? Well, I think I think there are a couple of things here. First, uh, and really the key role I think that CSI can play is providing good quantifiable analysis, transparency, and communicate with people in a clear way what's happening. But I would be, as a, as a general proposition, be very wary of complicated things that happen in the last few days that haven't gone through an extensive stakeholder process. And it's one thing to have a bill that gets passed in the last few days that's been uh, that's been examined for and, and debated and so forth for months, much as, as happened with the parallel legislation I mentioned years ago. It is another thing to have something uh, pop up without, without having been thoroughly vetted and, and discussed. And I think that's that's what you're looking at here. So that's that's one piece of it. Two is, let's be very clear that they're essentially proposing paying people money or, or trying to reduce the impact of these taxes using money that people were going to get in the future anyway. So- Oh, wait, wait, wait. stop, stop, stop. Wait a minute. So you're telling me that 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 what is being given to me, I would have been, I would have gotten that anyway. Yes, sir. In the future, you would have. You get it a little bit sooner. You don't get it later, and this is designed to uh, to make you feel better about otherwise paying higher taxes. And of course, some of this money would then be used for other means. We talked about funding schools, and and people may may in fact want to do all this. But they, they need to be making this decision uh, fully armed with the facts and with information so they can they can assess it with eyes wide open. And I suspect that that is not the case right now. I, I want to make certain I think I understand this. I'm going to hand this off to, to George in a second. So you're telling me that I'm getting money that I would have gotten at some point in time in the future and that there's a significant amount of money coming in from these higher property taxes that will be going to other, regardless of of what I may be getting back in a tight taper refund or in a this special piece of uh, I guess the proposition giving me six hundred and some odd dollars. There's additional money there. How much additional money is there that's coming out of this uh, higher valuation for properties and the property tax associated with it? And where might it go? It's a great question, Earl, and I, I really think this is the work that CSI will be prioritizing this summer. It's not just a calculator to help Colorado residents determine how much their savings and long-term costs might be, but I think there's a real role in educating the Colorado voter and, and what's happening to all this revenue gathered under 303. How much is actually going towards the backfill and how much is actually going towards education? 
some initial analysis that CSI has conducted is showing that perhaps up to 90% of the revenue raised under 303 could be going to education. And as Lang said, that's not necessarily a good or bad thing, but it's something that the voters should know. If it's going for education, I'd say that's about what, about $4 billion, if I heard some numbers earlier. My goodness, couldn't, uh, you know, it seems to me that you throw $4 billion into our system, we could just about pay for a lot of scholarships for kids to go to college and or do, do we know how that money might be used? Or is that something that Lang is referring to and uh, that stakeholders need to have a conversation about? The devil is really in the details in some of these things is it's not just enough to say we're going to spend X or Y amount on a very broad subject like education. As a parent with kids in the public schools right now, you want to know how that money is actually going to be spent um, to help better prepare these kids for, for the challenges they're going to face. I think a lot of taxpayers and a lot of parents want to know with a lot more granularity, with a lot more detail, um, how this money is going to be spent and how it is tied to actually preparing their kids for the, for the future. And this goes back to the stakeholders you're referring to and the vetting. You know, speaking of vetting a particular problem, Georgia, seems to me you're perfect for that. My gosh, you've had to handle some really difficult situations in your life as a district attorney and attorney and getting into the details of th how things work. What are your thoughts on what's going on here? Listen, first off, thank you, Tabor, because this is the kind of thing that but for Tabor, the legislature just would have done at the last minute without us, and it just would have become a fact. But Tabor forces them to come to us and get permission, but therein lies the problem. Now the legislature is taking advantage of a couple different things. One, there are two processes for getting things to the voters to get their input on them. One is through the petition process and guys like Michael Fields at Advanced Colorado and others ha have done that quite successfully. The problem is when they offer ballot language, they have to go through the title, the title board and the title board can say, hey, this is more than a single subject that's not permissible in our constitution. Hey, this is confusing. This is obfuscating. This is, they can do all those things. When the legislature does it, they get to just pick whatever language they want and send it to the ballot. And so I don't view this as some sort of a frenetic last minute effort. This was strategic. We have all heard the governor and the legislature say for more than a year, this would be a priority. And we heard it at the end in part so they could jam the language that they wanted into what has become colloquially called preparation HH as opposed to proposition HH. The other problem with this is it is a chance for them uh, that don't like Tabor to do away with Tabor refunds in perpetuity. But here's the kicker. The language they chose, oddly, doesn't include the Tabor anywhere in the ballot measure, nowhere in the description of the ballot measure, nor the impact it'll have. And so when Lang talks about the fact that people are getting imperfect information, it's more than that. They're being given information that is deliberately less than would tell them the, the whole picture. And so, Earl, when you say, wait a minute, I'm entitled to this money and they're taking money from my left pocket and putting it in my right, that's all true. But in the exchange for that, they're figuring out a way to say within the next 10 years, you're never going to get any more refunds. Government will be free to grow at a different pace than is already set in our constitution. And so what bothers me is not that we get a chance to vote on this. I want to be able to vote. My problem is we don't get the information to tell us what the hell we're voting on. And that's the problem. That's pretty sobering. Kelly, what does CSI plan to do to get information out there? Earl, we really have, you know, multi-tiered strategy. Like I mentioned, we will have the calculator to help 
Colorado residents understand what the reduction could look like, but also that loss of the Tabor refund. We'll also be putting out a ballot guide analysis. CSI does that really every fall. I think this is probably, I think Prop HH is, is probably the one that will be front and center where we'll be able to do a little bit of modeling under a few different scenarios of what would the tax increase look like if we just kept current law? What would it look like under HH? What could it look like under a cap? There were some legislative um, approaches that didn't really move forward. Some of those could be modeled so that we can truly educate voters on those different pathways so that they can go to the ballot box in November, fully understanding both costs and benefits to their pocketbook. Seems to me the CSI has a big task on its hands to explain what could be um, a confusing topic as far as the language goes so that everybody can really understand what the impact is long-term and short-term. Kelly, I'm not letting you off the hook. One of the governor's top legislative priorities uh, and it failed. Uh, can you describe uh, what was achieved in terms of housing this year? And I also know there are a lot of things that were passed with regards to housing that uh, I, I look at and I'm saying, my goodness, I can't imagine that apartment rents aren't going to go up and make housing even more more unaffordable. But I know CSI's Terry J. Stevenson fellows, Peter Lafari and Evelyn Lim, called for some statewide housing solutions in their 2021 report. Uh, they encouraged the statewide solutions to harness economies of scale. How did it work out? Great question. Housing was truly one of the top issues of this legislative session. And it's absolutely a problem. And let's start with the why. I'm a Denver resident. Let's talk about some some Denver data. CSI estimated we're down about 100,000 units in terms of affordable housing units here in just Denver. And like you said, it that's why we had our two fellows, Evelyn and Peter, they came together and produced a long list of recommendations back in 2021. And from our perspective, we were pleased that the legislature considered some of those ideas. You know, we don't endorse certain policies. We don't lobby, but it's always a good sign when you can see that the governor and legislature, you know, they're reading our reports and they're looking at what's in there. You know, one legislation, the larger bill 213, I'll get to that in a moment, but I want to talk about a piece that's not getting as much attention that we were really pleased to see get some consideration and move forward. That was House Bill 1255. And that bans these local anti-growth measures that limit jurisdictions' ability to produce more housing units. So think about jurisdictions that are, are known for this include Boulder, Lakewood, Golden. It's pretty anti-competitive. They actually restrict the ability to have new housing units. So that's no longer going to be allowed. So that'll be interesting legislation um, for CSI to analyze over time to see if that makes a difference with closing some of our housing unit gaps. But back to 213, Earl, that was um, the legislation that Dominic, Senator Dominic Moreno moved forward with some other House leaders. And I think when you go, it's a little too much too fast. I think it was about a 120 page bill that had some interesting considerations for a role for the state to try to identify some ways that local zoning could maybe have some more efficiencies. Could there be ways to incentivize regional strategies to address our housing shortage? Our fellows report back in 2021, it was called Conflict to Compassion, a housing blueprint for Colorado. And they weren't kidding. Housing policy is full of conflicts. This was a charged issue. 
Like I said, I, I think this bill had some provisions worth considering, and maybe those will come back. Perhaps there is a role for the state in addressing um, state land use. But this proposal wasn't it. I think it was too much, too fast. And I, I hope that policymakers will come back with maybe a more targeted approach where they can work with some of our mayors and city council leaders and maybe take some smaller bites at the apple. I have to say one more thing about housing, Earl, sorry to go on and on, but something that was left, that was left behind in the conversation was construction defects. We have heard, we are doing a study on this right now, that if we had better laws that supported developers' interest in increasing the number of units, and that has to include condos, we need an all-the-above housing supply strategy approach. There's many buyers looking for condos, but we don't. We have a lot of developers, Earl, that won't even construct one. And Lane can talk about this, too. So that is something that CSI will also be studying what could be the benefit to the Colorado housing supply if we had more commonsensical construction um, defect legislation on the books? Well, I, I hope that there's something that can be done that arena because I know that uh, we hire a lot of young people and starting their careers with us and their first uh, opportunity to own a, some, uh, a you know, home or residence is a condo and uh, housing is in short supply for these folks. George, uh, I, I don't want to focus uh, exclusively on this legislative session, but I know that you track the state ballot uh, initiatives closely in addition to property taxes. What other ballot measures could Coloradoans expect and, and uh, maybe be prepared for in 2023 and 2024? And how can uh, CSI continue to play an important role in educating voters? How do you how to help us be more effective for the folks on the podcast? as an organization? Well, I think one of the things to look for is the reemergence of something that was tried in the last legislative cycle, but was killed through that uh, title board process that I talked to you about. And that was called truth in sentencing. And that was an effort uh, by folks, petition gatherers who came to people just like us, got signatures, got all the ones they needed to put something on the ballot. And that language basically said, if you are convicted of a violent crime in the state of Colorado, you will do a minimum of 85% of your time. There's probably a lot of people out there right now who are like, what do you mean only 85%? I mean, don't they do that already? The answer is a big fat no. In fact, the problem with Colorado's sentencing structure, and I think this directly impacts public safety, is that there isn't anybody on the planet Earth, including the judge at the time of sentencing nor the executive director of the Department of Corrections, who can tell you the minimum amount of time anybody will serve in prison short of life without parole for first degree murder. So you have people that are convicted of something we read in the paper. Oh, my gosh, they got 20 years in the Department of Corrections for stabbing someone. You think, OK, 20 years, that's a long time. It's not really 20 years. Their parole eligibility is most likely going to be at 10 years or less, and they'll be transitioning into community corrections before. That is unfair, not only to the stabber, but to the stabby, the victim, and to the community at large to not know what the predictable consequences of violent crime and other crimes are. So this is an effort that I think is going to make it on the ballot. Last time, it was defeated at the last minute by some, in my opinion, some political efforts. Uh, the Attorney General and the Secretary of State have memberships on, on these boards. They substituted out their normal representatives and voted to kill this off for some technical reasons that could have been cured before. Uh, but I think this time it's going to happen and we're finally going to be in a place in Colorado when when somebody leaves the courtroom on an attempt murder charge, we know the minimum amount of time that they're going to serve in prison. 
in terms of CSI's role, I think, and I think you're going to see this in, a, in some Q3 reporting that Mitch and I are doing, but there needs to be a deep dive look too on what DA's offices are doing and how courts are responding to what they're doing, uh, whether it's plea bargains, sentences, bond, all of those things are things I think the public just kind of shrugs at because we read something in the paper and we truly don't know uh, the consequences of those. And so we're going to we're going to do a lot more of that coming up here in the next quarter. Lang and 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 you, George, have been in the service, um, and I cannot imagine a military where you don't know which commander you're supposed to follow to do one thing or another if you're in a field of combat, and you've got one commander saying, hey, why don't we go around the folks, or whatever it might be, why don't we do a charge straight ahead, or uh, why don't we just do a flyover versus let's do a real strafing of these folks to wipe out the enemy. If you have all sorts of uncertainty, how in the world could you have a, uh, a, a, a any kind of armed forces that would have any effectiveness? And I have to go back to society. If they don't know what the consequences are of their actions, how do you have any sense of uh, of, of people saying, hey, I know that this is going to happen, so I better not do it? I, it's confusion to me, at least if I were somebody out on the street being a, a, a victim and or somebody that would be doing something I shouldn't be. You're right, Earl, but but real quickly here, th- this is the flip side of what CSI has done. When CSI investigated what was going on with motor vehicle theft, it was telling you that criminals out there know the predictable consequences for motor vehicle theft, and that is nothing. And it's because those consequences were predictably nothing or de minimis that we saw the spike in motor vehicle uh, motor vehicle theft. So you're right. The education piece matters, but also the predictability matters. And Lang, I know you were going to say something, probably about Go Army. Just wanted to. <laughs> uh, I was. I was just gonna. I was just gonna comment. I think your military analogy is actually very good. Uh, George has undoubtedly been involved in the creation of rules of engagement that can get very, very complicated. And uh, if you don't have unity of command and you don't know what the objectives are and they're not clear, no, you're not going to do a very good good job in that environment. And, and the same thing applies here. And I think he's he, he's right that the, uh, the the criminals figure out very quickly where the seams are. Well, Lang, I'm not going to let you off the hook here. You did a report that I thought, thought was one of the most uh, interesting uh, comparative studies, as well as just hard analysis on the Colorado economy. You, you released a compelling report highlighting $2 billion in annual cost of just seven recent laws and regulations on labor and, and environment. You also compared Colorado's policy trends to those of several states that have a significant out-migration occurring and, and also to states that have significant in-migration occurring. And how do you stack all this up and what do you think the risk is for our state if we continue to expand what's pretty clear what's in these labor and environmental regulations and what they're doing? Give us a summary of what you found. It was staggering to me. Sure. Well, what, what we did, I mean, the, the big question that we're trying to to answer and, and do it in smaller sort of digestible bites is how does Colorado stand up uh, relative to other states out there in terms of how competitive we are? You know, we have a, a saying in the military that the enemy gets a vote, and I would never refer to other states as the enemy, but they are our competitors and so knowing where we stand is important. And so with that as sort of a backdrop, we looked at three things. The first we looked at was what are our migration patterns? Who's, who's you know, are people coming to this state? Are they, are they leaving the state? And what does that tell us? 
And what we discovered was that Colorado, which over the last decade and a half or so has been a very attractive state to come to and has seen a significant net migration, a positive inflow of people, over the last two years, that dropped off precipitously, dropped off by about 80 percent. So we're still a net positive, but just a trickle. Now, it dropped off. It dropped off how much in two years? It dropped off by about eighty percent in the oh last two years. Okay. And so, two years doesn't make a trend, and this is during COVID. So we were careful about the conclusions that we draw. But it is very interesting that during that same period, when Colorado's influx dropped off dramatically, the migration patterns to two of our peer competitor states, namely Arizona and Utah actually continued to increase. So relative to our peer geographic competitors, we've had a drop and theirs has continued to, to increase. And of course that has the potential if it continues to really impact our economy significantly uh, in at least two ways. One of course is our tax base and two is our labor force because Colorado has always had a very high quality labor force, but in what is known as the Colorado paradox, we've done it by importing people. So we are number two nationwide in terms of the, the percentage of our workforce that has a college degree. And yet we rank number 44 in high school graduation rates. So we've been importing talent for a long time. And if we cease to do that, that's a threat. So that's the first thing we looked at. The second thing was, as you mentioned, we looked at the impact of a number of recent pieces of legislation in the areas of labor and employment on the one hand, environmental regulation on the other. And we did that because a survey done by the Colorado Chamber of Commerce identified those as major areas of concern for some for our business community. And what we discovered is that the bills that we could quantify, and many of them we couldn't, but of the bills that we could quantify, there are about a $2 billion annual hit for our employers here in the state of Colorado. And it's important that a number of other bills that we looked at, we couldn't quantify them, but you could certainly tell that they were going to increase costs for employers. So that was very significant. And then the third thing that we did was we looked at several other states uh, three categories. One is states that have been attracting a lot of people and businesses, namely Florida and Texas, states where people and businesses have been leaving, uh, New York, Illinois, and California, and then those two peer competitors of Arizona and Utah. And we said, if we look at legislation in these areas of labor and employment and the environment, how does Colorado stack up? And if you look at that matrix, it is very clear that the direction that we have been going and will continue on if we don't change course is much more in line with what you see in the states that are losing people than it is in the states that are gaining people. And it is also very out of whack with what you see in our competitor states of Arizona and Utah. So you put all that together and it is a cautionary tale of how actions by the legislature can make the state more expensive and potentially repel uh, members of the workforce and businesses. That's kind of sobering. I'm going to ask you as we close out on this session discussion with uh, George and, and Kelly and you, I'm going to ask you what comes next, but I won't ask that right now. Can you 
Uh, George, can you share from your perspective uh, as the CSI Owens Early Criminal Justice Fellow, uh, what were the big wins from the legislative session and where is there more work needed? You'd mentioned on the uh, felon charges on auto theft, but where else were other big wins and where is more work needed? Well, as you can imagine with the current composition of the legislature, sometimes win is defined as losing less. And so we had a pretty big bill that sought to immunize those offenders 12 years old and under from any criminal consequences, not even in the juvenile justice system for anything short of first degree murder. And the end result would be no joke that if a 12 year old walked into class with a gun and that has happened and shot a teacher and a couple students, but nobody died, they would not be apprehended. They would not be detained. They would not be charged. They would receive an informational sheet from a police officer whose only job would be to determine if there was probable cause to believe they'd committed a crime. Their parent would receive an invitation to a group meeting with some community-based uh, folks. And if they didn't show up, they would get the dire consequences of an invitation to a second meeting. And if they didn't show up to that, to a third meeting. And finally, if all of that went wrong, the possibility that DHS would be recommended to file a dependency and neglect act. That is a formula for disaster. No other state does it like that. In fact, the, I think the majority of states have no floor below which someone can be prosecuted for a crime. For Colorado, it has been 10. And now they want to wipe it out from 12 and below. And then 13 to 17 were much more mitigated consequences. For instance, if a 17-year-old drove drunk for the third or fourth time and killed a family of five, they couldn't be prosecuted as an adult. They would face juvenile consequences. That bill mercifully was gutted to the point at the end where it really just became another sort of vehicle for them to do some research and then come back with recommendations that will probably make us pull the home alone, kind of that scream that, ah, when we put the aftershave on. Uh, there have been, uh, there was another couple victories. One, the, the Court of Appeals had jacked up the definition of serious bodily injury to exclude someone being shot with a gun unless they suffered a broken bone or some sort of a perforated organ. That doesn't make any sense. So the legislature went in and fixed it so that that's not a problem. And then they also passed a law to expand who, which convicted criminals end up having to provide samples of their DNA to help us close more of the cold cases and, and further accountability. I think those are three of some of the biggest wins that we had. Well, we'll take them. We'll take uh, Lang Kelly, uh, one bill we analyzed closely was uh, was HB 23-1118 titled Fair Work Week Employment Standards, which proposed to establish sweeping new requirements for how the scheduling of shift workers must work across the state of Colorado. After much debate, the fair worksheet bill died. Lang and then Kelly, uh, what are your thoughts on this legislation and the role the CSI played and uh, do you expect it to come back? So this legislation had a lot of attention, this legislative session. 1118, it was called the Fair Work Week Employment Standards Legislation. It sounds good. So what's the problem? Well, when the CSI team started to analyze it, we compared it across other states. Many of the states that Lang's report talked about um, looking at different labor and employment laws that are on the books. How does this compare? And the legislation as drafted would have made Colorado the most restrictive scheduling um, state in the country. 
And Earl, I mean, let's be honest. I was a waitress for five summers throughout college. I, I know what this um, job entails. And I do think the legislators were well-intentioned in what they were trying to accomplish. But the problem is it is hard to schedule an unpredictable industry. Restaurant owners, hotels, other key industries that would have been impacted, they would have had to provide prescriptive, exact scheduling for their hourly workers many weeks in advance. If the employer broke any of those requirements, it could have been grounds for suing. And it's just not the nature of the industry. CSI was able to analyze the actual cost. This is something that our fiscal note is good at calculating the cost to the state, but they're not good at always analyzing what are the costs to the covered business. So we were able to show for a restaurant that had the number of workers under a covered business under the definition of the of the bill, that it would cost about $2,200 to $6,000 per shift employee per year. And that's a total cost of significant dollars, Earl. We're talking about half, excuse me, $500,000 to $1,000,000 dollars per year for the compliance. And what the research also documented in addition to the cost is there's unintended consequences to the employees. There's less freedom and autonomy to make your desired schedule changes, fewer available shifts, and you also see an increase in part-time work for employees who don't wanna be part-time. Blaine, um, you get the follow-up question, being the former legislator, uh, is it dead or are we about to see a continuing saga here? I would always assume that it is not dead and that it will come back um, maybe in the same form or maybe in some in some different form, but I would always assume that it would come back. And, you know, to pick up a little bit on what Kelly said, I don't dispute the motives of the folks running the legislation, but these things often have a cost and the cost uh, is so high that it will have an un unintended consequence in many cases for the very people that you're trying to help. And I think that's one of the things that the CSI research was able to show because they were able to quantify the actual cost per employee and per business of a certain type. So that was very, very, it was very, very valuable. Um, and being able to do that is important. And she also mentioned something that is a pervasive problem, and that is that our our fiscal note or our fiscal note process at the Capitol, which looks at the consequences, the financial consequences for government, does not look at the dynamic consequences for the private sector, the con the consumer, and those those second and third order consequences that in many cases are very very significant. Well, that's one of the advantages of us having a dynamic model that we can use. That's right. Um, and also uh, very skilled people in using it. Uh, George, with the Denver elections coming up, uh, I know the CSI produced a local election guide with reports on Denver crime, housing, homelessness, and we've been kind of leading the effort on those issues on the front range. According to the CSI report on Denver crime rates, the average monthly crime rate was 43% higher in 2022 than in 2018, and 75% higher in 2008. To what degree do you think local and state policy changes have impacted these trends? And how should Denver's uh, next mayor address these growing problems and 
By the way, I've talked to a lot of folks in Denver and they're saying they don't have the money to address the homeless problem and what needs to be done. And the money is an issue with regards to the having the police force. So uh, be most interested in your response. Well, it's hard to imagine what the reason for that uh, fiscal uh, downturn is because Denver, as you know, is not just the Queen City. It's kind of the hub for the economy out here in this part of the country. Um, and I think it's a matter of prioritization. Now, in terms of what local and state policies impact the crime rate there, uh, there's plenty. But I want to acknowledge this. Listen, the criminal justice system is the last stop on a long, long train of problem solving. And we're it. When everything else fails, we're kind of the drain for society. So the things that they could do public safety wise in Denver are much more short term fixes. The longer term fixes are the things you mentioned, Earl addressing homelessness, addressing mental illness, trying to stop this uh, anyone can take any drug they want at any time kind of a culture and the permissive uh, crime culture that is permeating Denver. All of those things would have greater long-term consequences. In the short term, look, the Denver municipal uh, laws have some impact, but when you get right down to it, the discretion exercised by an elected district attorney can have a huge impact independent of any laws there. It doesn't matter what laws are on the books if the DA refuses to prosecute them or prosecute them vigorously. It doesn't matter what potential bonds exist for certain crimes or repeat offenders if the DA won't seek them. And then you add to that a bench, a judiciary who has been conditioned to believe that that jail and prison should be the very last consequence if everything else fails. And we end up having more and more of the criminal element back on the street, regardless of the things that they do. So my opinion, if Denver wants to tackle this in the short term, they're going to make some real quick and immediate investments in the Denver Police Department to allow them to keep doing the good work that they're trained to do in this crime wave. And two, they will focus their attention on the discretion that's exercised by their district attorney. And they'll ask a lot of questions. Long term, got to fix housing, got to fix mental health, got to fix addiction. You fix all those things. Hell, if you can just fix the kids and youth from zero to age 12, B and DA would be ridiculously boring. And I've said this before, crime would fall off a cliff if we could figure out how to get kids at least to age 12 in a healthy, educated, thriving environment where they feel supported. Crime would start to disappear in about a generation. Well, well, it, uh, you have to listen to that. You have to wonder, uh, well, you, you hope that the mayoral candidates have the uh, answers to what you brought up and it's a challenging, uh, challenging job. In closing, Lang, uh, we've discussed so much uh, work from the first half of the year, but let's preview preview your next report. I understand you're analyzing the growing costs of litigation to employers, consumers, and the state. Any initial findings or concerns that you can share and uh, what will be in your next report for CSI? I'll hold off on some, on some of the findings, but the focus, as you mentioned, is on the, it's essentially the next chapter, the, ne- the next look at this issue of Colorado's competitiveness. And so looking at the cost of, of civil litigation and new and or expanded causes of action and trying to, to see what the balance is between what benefits they might bring and the actual costs particularly the aggregate costs of that. I mean, 
We mentioned a couple in our conversation here already. One is is construction defects and the impact that that's having on on available housing in a particular niche of the important niche of the housing environment. And then two, Kelly mentioned our Fair Work Week legislation that failed, but actually had a cause of action uh, embedded in that. And the balance here, and George, I'm sure as as an attorney may have some, some thoughts on this, but I don't think any anyone disputes the value that civil litigation can have in protecting consumers, for example, and in holding bad actors accountable. Um, the question is, in what situations does that ability to sue and those causes of actions actually end up allowing some overreach on the part of plaintiffs and plaintiffs attorneys to the point where it drives up costs for everybody and again contributes to making Colorado a more and more expensive place. One of the things that we will be doing is comparing those causes of action and how they have developed and evolved in Colorado relative to some other states, especially our our competitor states, uh, to see, uh, try and get a glimpse into where we are heading and where, where we'll go if this trend continues. Does that answer your question, Earl? Yeah, it does. And I and I no offense, I know you have your law degree from Michigan and I know that George is has has his law degree and both of you have been superb in this conversation with regards to you know being careful about litigation and all that. But there's got to be better answers than just litigation all the time. But thank you for being my guest today. I've learned a lot of, about a busy six months and I can't wait to See how CSI prioritizes the remainder of the year. Good luck, Kelly, and prioritize it. For prioritizing it, it seems like the ballot uh, will present a very pressing opportunity to educate voters and the significance and the complexity of the property, HH, uh, property tax reductions and its implications for reduced TABOR refunds. But thank you all for taking on the challenges so that we can be a better informed public. Uh, Thanks, Earl. Thanks, CSI. Thank you for listening to the Common Sense Digest. For more on today's topic, as well as our research on the most pressing public policy issues facing Colorado, please visit commonsenseinstituteco.org. The preceding episode, along with all others, is available on podcatchers everywhere or on our website under the podcast tab. Our technical producer is John Ekstrom and Deft Communications. This has been a production of the Common Sense Institute.